Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to the third in our Policy Forum Pod Leadership Mini-Series. We have seen something of a crisis in leadership in Australia in recent years. Central to this crisis are a series of revelations on the way in which women are treated within the political system in Australia. Today on the pod, we delve deeper into women and political leadership in Australia particularly, and how gender inequality sets up barriers to gender equal leadership and to just societies. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net, here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. The Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate public policy school. Do remember to check out the range of degree programs and short courses that we have on a whole range of issues, and you can find all of that information at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study, and you can find out how you can study with us either face-to-face or online. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School. And I am delighted to be joined, not in the studio, but remotely today, by Anna Greta Hunter. Anna Greta is in the beautiful northern parts of Victoria. Yeah, Sharon, I feel very, very lucky to be here, locked up in, in a regional part of Victoria, in contrast to my many friends and family who are in Sydney and around the country in all sorts of different COVID states. So um, it is wonderful to be with you virtually, and I'm really, really pleased to have our guest with us today on such an important topic for those who don't know me, my name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at ANU. So it's great to be with you. And let me just reassure all our listeners that Anna Greta is not suffering. She has been sending me photos of the most amazing <laughs> scenery. So she is happily in lockdown. <laughs> it is possibly the best place for any form of isolation. <laughs> If you're so inclined in that direction, yeah, it's been wonderful. In 2021, we have more women as heads of state and or heads of government and more women as ministers around the world than ever before. But even so, only just over 23% of cabinet ministers globally are women. And what's more, the Interparliamentary Union has reported that we are currently seeing some backsliding. 
In only 13 countries are there equal numbers of women and men in ministerial positions. In Australia, we're not close to gender parity, with women making up only nine out of the 30 members of the federal frontbench and outer ministry. Australia now ranks 51st in the world in terms of the percentage of parliamentarians who are women. So in terms of numbers, we, we have some challenges. But beyond the numbers, as recent events have shown, Australia is also facing some serious challenges with the treatment of women who do engage in politics and political leadership. For those of you who have watched the ABC miniseries Misrepresented, which has just been released and is hosted by Annabelle Crabb, those challenges are painfully clear, and today's guest appeared on that series. Globally, we've seen some really interesting discussion around different styles of leadership that emerge when women are equally engaged in politics and leadership roles. New Zealand is often highlighted as a country that has done incredibly well in achieving both equality and diversity. Currently, within New Zealand's 20-person cabinet, eight members are women, five are Māori, three are Pacifica, and three are from LGBTQ communities. And Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern's leadership is often described as being characterised by inclusion and empathy. So today we're delving into some of these issues around women's political leadership, and we have a very special guest to talk us through some of the challenges, but also the ways forward. Anna Greta, do you want to announce who we have with us? Uh, look, I'm so, so pleased to announce that we've got Natasha Stott-Despoyer with us today. I'm sure almost all of the listeners to our podcast will know Natasha well, but to just go briefly over her quite remarkable career, she most recently in November 2020 was elected to the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. She's the first Australian to serve on that committee in, in nearly 30 years. She's also chair of Our Watch, an Australian organisation that's focused on the primary prevention of violence against women and their children in Australia. Natasha served as Australia's ambassador for women and girls from 2013 through to 2016. And of course, before that, she had a long history in federal parliament as the Senator for South Australia between 1995 and 2008 and served as leader of the Australian Democrats from 1997 through to 2001. Natasha, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for those generous comments and that kind introduction and also for giving a plug to Annabelle Crabb's wonderful series, Misrepresented, which, as you've said, indeed highlights not only some of the history, or should I say herstory, of women in politics in Australia, but some of the challenges that we're still facing. Absolutely. As I was watching it the other night, I thought there's so many, so much in common between that series, which I do recommend to everybody to watch, and the sort of conversation that we're t hoping to take away from today. Natasha, we've had some very disturbing cases in Australia of women being treated with utter disrespect in the political process. Certainly, Julia Gillard's prime ministership was marked with personal attacks on her. And of course, Julia Banks' recent revelations suggest that misogyny runs deep, and we know that this is a long history. Based on your experiences and observations, how much more difficult is it for women in politics in Australia? Well, you're right. This year has exposed some toxic culture within the parliament, but also has highlighted the slow rate and pace of change when it comes to women's representation uh, in our federal parliament, but also more generally in Australian life, in decision-making institutions more generally but also the fact that women and men do not fare 
equally in our society. When you talk about the, the challenges or the difficulties that face women in politics, they are writ large. I think that we are conscious of the fact that women are still subject to ridiculous stereotypes, uh, double standards. We're judged by our appearance, our marital status, our parental situation. I mean, these are things that were part and parcel of my era. And let's be clear, that's almost 26 years ago since I first stepped foot or stepped dock into the parliament. But the <laughs> fact that we're still talking about these issues today is greatly concerning. And obviously the revelations during this year have shown that the culture is one in which women are not only subject to double standards and confronting those stereotypes, but they're unsafe in some circumstances and still subject to harassment and sexism and discrimination of the worst kind. Uh, on the flip side, though, I do say this has been a reckoning this year, so I feel optimistic that this will lead to change, be it in the parliament specifically or more broadly in Australian culture and society. That's what I'm hoping. I think if there is one positive that we can take from all that has happened over the past months, it is exactly that, that we are having conversations about issues that we've known about for so long, but that we've not spoken openly about. And the fact that some very courageous women are prepared to come forward and openly talk about the pain of these situations, I think does give us a real cause for optimism. But Natasha, I, I wanted to take you back just a, a, to the, the nature of Australian politics itself. And in our first episode of this mini-series mini on leadership, we spoke with Frank Brongiorno from here at the ANU and from Chris Wallace, and they made the point that Australian politics are particularly aggressive and combative. And I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on that, whether in Australia there's an issue with the nature of politics itself or whether we find ourselves in a climate that really is anti-women or whether it's a combination of both of those things or, or perhaps something different. It's a combination of uh, of those things, but uh, of course we have this, you know, wonderfully interesting hybrid system. You know, we've got a bit of Washington and we've got a bit of Westminster, and that Washminster system has certainly perpetuated that adversarial, almost gladiatorial style of politics. I mean, you can't sit in a chamber that is designed as a horseshoe and is theoretically, you know, one and a half sword lengths apart from your opponent <laughs> without steeping in some of that history. You know, you, you are conscious of the fact that it is set up as an adversarial system, which at its best, of course, is designed to, you know, prod you and make you think and be challenged and scrutinised and query and question your opponents. At the worst of times, though, it does breed an atmosphere of disrespect and attack and increasingly, and I do associate this more with modern times, increasingly personal attacks. I think the level of civil discourse in Australia today is as low as I've ever seen it. And as a student of history, I'm conscious that some people may say "'twas ever thus, but even little breaks on people's attitudes and behaviour have gone. For example, when I 
listen to Question Time and, yes, I'm still a bit of a political junkie, so I occasionally listen to Question Time in the car, (laughs) maybe on school runs or other work, and I hear people address each other directly, you know, you, you, or so-and-so this or you're that, and not just the nature of the abuse but even some of the the inability to work through the chair, you know, some of those mechanisms that are part of the Westminster system, which are designed to put a break on hostilities, they're not employed in the same way they have been in the past. Having said that, the content and some of the comments emanating from the chamber have made me gasp sometimes. And that's not to say that it wasn't the same in my day. Some of the comments that were thrown at me or at other colleagues were appalling. But the very personal nature of the commentary now concerns me, combined with what should be a democratisation of the process. So the use of social media and the internet, that has also got an underside to it that has not been good for democracy at times and certainly hasn't always served women well at other times. There's that way that people can anonymously confront you or comment on issues that I find very underhand and and often threatening and abusive. Natasha, I just wanted to, to slip in a, a follow-up question on that. Is, is, is that culture that we see playing out in Question Time, for example, also playing out within sort of parliamentary committees where we sometimes hear that those committees are more collegial, that there's a more positive approach to resolving problems. But do we see that that really what what I think can only be described as often a toxic culture, you know, pervading all parts of the parliamentary decision-making processes? It's an interesting question because certainly there are examples of fine collegiality, whether it's through the committee or other, you know, engagements in politics and parliament. I do think, though, a lot of my colleagues or former colleagues say to me that there has been a diminution in some of those standards as well, that there is such a heightened sense of uh, rigidity, you know, within parties, party lines now, that that has made things quite difficult. And when you talk about the system itself, there are some interesting, you know, issues that we associate with our system. The fact that people sit in party, along party lines in the chambers. Um, That is, again, part of the system. But you look at other um, either experimental or relatively newer uh, parliaments around the world and some of the dynamics, how they change when you, say, put people together based on their region, you know, Mm. geographic boundaries, things like that, that would shake up our system. It's really actually hard to yell at the person next to you as opposed to the person a sword length and a half opposite you. Similarly, in the committee system, obviously people sit together and, you know, talk about issues and hopefully achieve some greater degree of consensus. Of course, you can't really say that about gladiatorial processes like Senate estimates, for example, where I'm not only concerned about the behaviour exemplified by members of parliament among or towards each other, but to external parties. And that's something that has really, really changed in the last couple of decades. The way that we treat particularly bureaucrats has concerned me as well. So there are logistical changes you could make that arguably would change the culture and behaviour. Whether or not we can change attitudes, that's another issue. 
Natasha, let's have a look at these, some of these questions on a global uh, basis. You've had a number of international roles, such as the Australian Australia being Australia's ambassador for women and girls with the World Bank's Gender Advisory Council and, of course, now uh, as a member of the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. When you look around the world, do you see these themes that we've been discussing in the Australian context emerging as barriers elsewhere? What do you see as the barriers to women engaging on equal terms and with equal respect within politics? Well, absolutely. These, this is a global phenomenon. Uh, first of all, no country in the world, as we know, has achieved gender equality. Uh, Sharon has outlined some of the statistics in relation to global representation. I mean, we know that despite the fact the issues affecting women and girls are arguably one of the great, you know, the great human rights challenges of our time, and yet around 24% of the world's parliamentarians are female, and you heard some of the cabinet and ministerial figures. We know that in our region, for example, we have some of the highest rates of violence in the world, and yet some of the lowest levels of representation of women at all, all government tiers, all government levels. And so I think you can see that while there are general issues and barriers that apply to all women throughout the world, of course these are compounded in in various countries depending on the situation of women in those in those places. Certainly in my experience, be it as the Australian Ambassador for Women and Girls, where I got to see firsthand you know, some of the grim realities of women's lives. You know, you can't go to the Syrian border or to uh, slums in India or domestic violence shelters in the jungles of Bougainville and not realise the extent to which or the depth of women's suffering in some places. And that obviously makes me feel comparatively better. You know, we are a fortunate country comparatively, but it still doesn't mean that we're equal or that we are not lagging behind in many respects, including, as you've pointed out, Australia's representation of women in Parliament. The fact that we're 50 or 51 in the world, 45 places at least behind our near neighbour, New Zealand, doesn't that say something to us as an arguably developed country that gave women the right to vote and stand for Parliament relatively early? So, yes, the global comparisons remind us that things are very, very grim in many places, but they also and my opportunity to see the good work of governments, NGOs, not-for-profits, individuals. I've seen the way progress is being made, and we know the key to progress around the world is investing in women and girls. We know that, you know, as the UN says, the closest thing to a silver bullet in human development is the education of girls, and all of these things are happening, although... My heart breaks with this pandemic because the impact of COVID on the lives of women and girls globally, even in our own nation, is incredibly concerning, um, specifically in the area in which I'm involved, so the prevention of violence against uh, women and children. But also it has exacerbated some of those existing gender inequalities in the workplace, in the home, and it will have long-lasting and devastating consequences for women and girls, whether that's in terms of child marriage, whether it's trafficking, whether it's abuse. So, yes, globally we are fortunate, but it doesn't mean that anyone's got it right yet. And when it comes to representation, yes, those obstacles and challenges are replicated throughout the world but compounded depending on women's circumstance in their country, the discrimination to which they're subjected, 
and the disadvantages they face. And we know, of course, gender inequality is not the same for all women. We know that other forms of disadvantage and discrimination intersect to make those experiences more difficult or more disturbing for some women. We've painted a a fairly gloomy picture of the challenges and the barriers facing women broadly across society and in political leadership particularly. And I think the point you make, Natasha, about, you know, in this context of pandemic, those challenges are, are being exacerbated and magnified. And of course, arguably, if women aren't well represented by those who are making decisions, then the way in which the pandemic and a whole range of other issues impact on women and their children are going to be so much more difficult. So let's start to to think a little bit about what we can do and how we can begin to respond. And let's have a chat about quotas. Quotas are, are one possible response to low numbers of women in parliament. They're controversial and they're not always effective. The the devil is always in the detail, as they say. In Australia, the major parties have taken very different approaches to quotas, and we don't have legislated or constitutionally required quotas, as some countries do. What's your view on the value of quotas in creating a political environment that's more conducive to women's leadership? Is it a way forward or is it fraught with problems? Of course, it's a way forward. We know that they can work. We know that they do work. Yes, they may be subject to different um, interpretations, so different types of quotas. But, you know, we're the first to advocate for quotas in our region because we recognise the fraught low levels of representation of women. And yet in our own country, governments are very wary to consider quotas not only for their own political parties, obviously with Labor Party is an exception to that, but also for business and industry. But the rationale for quotas is so strong. You know, you talk about leadership. The reason we want more women in power, and obviously we want diversity and difference reflected and represented generally, is not just because it's the right thing to do and it's the fair thing to do. It makes a difference. It makes a difference ultimately to policies affecting women and children. We know more women in politics and parliament leads to better distribution of public resources. It involves, you know, better maintenance of public infrastructure. And there's this inextricable link between more women in parliament and better efforts to address issues such as violence against women and children. So the rationale, the case is compelling. So how do we get there? Well, clearly we're not getting to gender parity fast enough. We're really only just in the last decade or so hit critical mass. I mean, for a country that introduced the right to vote in 1902 to most but not all women, not including Aboriginal women, but my home state of South Australia, 1894, Women, without caveats, have the right to vote and stand for parliament. So why is it taking more than a century and we're still not hitting gender parity? How do we turbocharge that? Yes, quotas. So I laugh every time someone uses the M word, merit. Oh, my goodness. I think we have exposed (laughs) that argument, haven't we? I mean, you don't look at the Australian federal parliament and say, everyone made it on merit. I I, I mean, I just... I think it's laughable. I don't know. There's a wonderful quote, I think, in Annabelle Crabbe's program by former Senator Margaret Reynolds, and she says something like, uh, you know, merit is the concept men, you know, (laughs) came up with in order to keep us out. I've paraphrased that probably badly, but it is ridiculous, this notion that people always make 
it on merit because certainly the parliament is not an indicator of that and nor it's not always about merit anyway it's about reflecting the diversity of our wonderful population in our decision making institutions and at the moment institutions that claim to be representative are not that not until there are more women men however we identify that's critically important so quotas are one way of making that happen and i thought they were i thought we were ready for quotas in you know 1994 i can't believe we're still having this discussion and particularly on one side of politics because let's let's face it it's the coalition that is lagging behind in the last two decades on women's representation i'd suggest to our listeners that they go back and have a listen to an episode on women's leadership earlier this year with the fabulous ANU-based feminist philosopher Fiona Jenkins, who does a fantastic analysis of the problems of the concept of merit that's very much along the lines that you're talking about, Natasha. Natasha, that's a fabulous discussion about the need for quotas and the benefit of quotas and just how far we are behind on making that decision. Let's take a break at this point in time and we'll be back in a few minutes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Natasha Stott-Despoyer. We're talking about women's political leadership. Before the break, we were talking about the rather depressing picture in Australia currently, but also some of the pathways forward. And so let's now turn to why this issue matters so much. Natasha, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on whether women bring a rather different style to political leadership. Of course, even the question carries with it some generalisations and assumptions that are highly problematic, but we do see in several countries where women are in in politics in greater numbers and particularly in highest positions that there's an indication of different style and different approaches. What are your thoughts on this? Well, undoubtedly women bring new styles of communication and decision-making to workplaces and to parliaments. I qualify that by saying, of course, we're not homogeneous and I'm not expecting us to be the same or agree on everything. It's precisely that difference that deserves to be represented. I'm not suggesting either as some kind of, you know, biological determinist that, you know, women are necessarily going to have an ameliorating impact on the workplaces in which they operate or indeed in the nation's parliament. I've seen women often get as good as they get, you know, in terms of feisty parliamentary debate. So there's an issue of not expecting women to necessarily change the atmosphere for the better. But we do know that where you reflect diversity, 
it does have an impact, a beneficial impact right down to measures as simple as profit and loss. We do know that our parliaments are the better for being more representative of our populations. So I do think in terms of the gender component, the idea that, you know, sexism and harassment and discrimination cannot flourish when you have greater numbers of women. Why? (laughs) Because it does change attitudes and behaviours. It does change the environment. It necessarily does. You know, we know that where women's faces are reflected and represented, that we start to change not only the policies but the practices that emanate from those institutions. So as I say, again, it's not only the right thing to do, but it does have an impact. And it's interesting, one of my favourite statistics is the one that where if you decrease parliamentary representation of women by 5%, you can see that nation is five times more likely to use military intervention to solve international disputes. (laughs) So there are real issues here when it comes to the message it sends, not just the symbolism, but the substance of having women in positions of power and in parliaments particularly. But yes, I know that parliaments will be feisty and to go back, you know, to Sharon, your point about the nature of the system. But I also know that sexist language and outdated stereotypes will start to wane and they will wane faster when you have gender parity. And not only that, when you have women actually represented in the upper echelons of power. So women in ministries, in cabinet, and ultimately, and hopefully again, a prime minister. One of the things that we have been hearing about sometimes associated with the kinds of leadership that women bring, but also as a, as, as a more general discussion about the kinds of leadership that we might want to see from men, is the role that empathy plays. And I'm particularly interested in this. I've just had a, an amazing PhD student complete her PhD thesis on empathetic leadership and just the difference that makes to the way in which leaders engage particularly with people living in marginalised or disadvantaged communities. And of course, as I said in the in the introduction, much has been said about Jacinda Ardern's approach. Mm. Natasha, how important is empathy in leadership? And I guess as a sub-question, how much of it do you think we're seeing in Australian politics today? Empathy is critical, of course. You know, it often bothered me this notion that to be an effective member of parliament or a successful one, you had to have, you know, quote, thick skin. I didn't want to be in a profession where I had to leave my heart at the door in order to be effective. And that's not to say that we don't, as functioning, clever, complex human beings, don't only, you know, we can we can balance our emotional, you know, attunement with also our intellectual understanding or objectivity. And I'm not expecting everyone to be objective, by the way. There's nothing wrong with a bit of subjectivity and passion and, uh, you know, belief in things. I guess the reality is that rigid gender stereotypes haven't served any of us particularly well. And I think that there are a lot of men in positions of power and in parliaments in particular who hopefully feel a little constrained by the hyper-masculine stereotype. You know, it it's actually true that still a fifth of Australians believe that men make better leaders because they're less emotional than women. I mean, a fifth of your population thinking that 
that's a pretty outdated and concerning statistic and helps explain still why women are reluctant to participate in politics or indeed face the barriers and the perceptions that they do. So empathy is not gendered. It shouldn't be. We're all capable of it, and I'm sure there are some of us who aren't capable of it at all sometimes. So when you ask if it how big a part of life it is at the moment, I think that people go to great lengths to try and prove that they're not empathetic. You know, we can't have, you know, we've got to think about the economy, can't think about empathy, you know, can't think about social costs, human costs. Uh, And I think Australians are starting to see through that because I'd like to think that we're all pretty empathetic individuals. But I do think we are constrained, all of us, by stereotypes. And we do know when it comes to the drivers, for example, of gendered violence in society, that rigid gendered stereotypes, disrespect of women, attitudes that condone disrespect for women and limits on women's independence, they are all big parts of disrespect and violence. So, yeah, I'm a big one about stereotypes and I'm never going to make that assumption that your gender somehow governs your suitability for office, even though I might say that, uh, you know, I, I, when you talk about New Zealand, there is a study, as you would know, that female-led countries during this COVID pandemic have actually performed better than male-led countries proportionally. And again, you know, I know people were saying, Natasha, you're the first person to say that you shouldn't make assumptions based on gender. You know, women aren't necessarily better at this or men aren't necessarily worse at this. But it just goes to show that there's a compelling case, moral, social and otherwise, for women as leaders, particularly in these current circumstances where empathy is craved more than ever. So I suspect there's quite a few examples of that. You've just given us a couple of uh, examples of where having more women involved in leadership roles changes outcomes. Can you flesh this out a little bit for us, maybe on the global stage uh, through your international roles, what sorts of outcomes we see when we have greater numbers of women who are in political roles um, and when we see greater diversity? What are the range of benefits? Is, is, it, is it about uh, gender violence or is it, is it do we see much broader benefits? across society and even the economy. Absolutely, broad-ranging, wide-ranging benefits, whether it's that in relation to public infrastructure, whether it's in relation to policies that ultimately you know, affect women and children, so investment in education, uh, whether it's climate, whether it's uh, specifically that one to which you referred and there is an absolute link between the number of women in political office and the reporting of crimes against women and measures to more effectively address violence against women. We also know that there's a flow-on effect in terms of perceptions, so that role modelling element. We know from studies, particularly in developing nations, that young women and girls are more likely to get involved in education, uh, employment, and become equipped themselves to be leaders and play a role, you know, exercise their agency, particularly in areas like conflict prevention, if they see more women in positions of power, you know, they're less likely to do household chores. You know, this is a really pivotal part of the equation. And I guess that's why I get quite upset now when I see surveys such as the Plan International survey that said zero to one percent of young girls or young women and girls would consider a parliamentary career in this day and age, because it is so fundamental 
that we encourage the next generations of women and girls to get involved in decision-making institutions because of those flow-on effects to, to which you refer. But, yeah, the evidence base is clear. It makes a difference in the same way, and I reiterate, that diversity you know, and inclusion in any decision-making body, in any boardroom, makes a difference right down to basic measures. Natasha, we've we've mentioned violence against women and against children a couple of times throughout this conversation. And of course, you are, um, were the founding chair of the board of, of Our Watch, which aims to end violence against women and their children. I'm, I'm interested to, to just go a little deeper into how we start to think about the role of political leadership in tackling issues of violence against women um, and to bring that again back to the Australian context. And I think it is just so deeply disturbing when we see the statistics of the number of women who are murdered by intimate partners and the daily face abuse or coercive behaviour. And then we see some of the behaviours playing out in Parliament, including, you know, the, the terrible allegations of a rape taking place within Parliament House and the response to that. So I'm, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on what we need to see from political leaders and government particularly in Australia to start to shift both the discourse but also the reality of violence against women in Australia. I'm going to start with the good news. That would be lovely. <laughs> violence against women is preventable. So it's not an inherent part of our biological condition that we have gendered violence. It is absolutely as a consequence of our culture and inequality. And as I mentioned previously, there are specific drivers of this higher levels of violence against women and children. And so how do we stop this violence and prevent it or eliminate it? We do have to invest in primary prevention. We do have to tackle those underlying attitudes and behaviours that give rise to the violence in the first place. We do have to work in all those settings, you know, where we live, love, learn, work and play. We have to tackle those historically entrenched beliefs and structures and processes that have allowed this gender inequality but also have led to such disrespect and thus violence. You're right to highlight some of the high-profile matters that have been, you know, exposed or raised this year. You know, Brittany Higgins's point about the fact that if it can happen in Parliament, it can happen anywhere is a really astute point. And for the first time, you know, the combination of hearing Brittany Higgins and within the same month, Grace Tame, our Australian of the Year, these young, brave women shining a spotlight on these previously, you know, unspeakable Acts. I think it's the first time the country was really getting a sense of the depth and the prevalence of women's suffering and discrimination in Australia. Hence my views that exposing and talking about these issues does lead to change. But I'm not going to pretend that there's a simple answer to preventing violence because it is complex. But as they say, you know, at the core of the problem, the evidence base is clear. The international research shows clearly that at the core of the problem, we have gender inequality. So that means at the heart of the solution, it's gender equality. And that means everywhere. So whether it's your workplace, whether it's your university, whether it's education, respectful relationships, education in schools, whether it's us as parents or caregivers, modelling respectful, ethical, healthy relationships, 
whether it's workplace equality and respect programs and policies in our workforce so that we support victims and survivors of abuse, but we also embed in our institutions gender equality more broadly. And yes, that means even in our parliaments and especially so. And I just wait for the day when leaders not only abhor something that may have happened, but they actually start to model respectful relationships themselves. And that's not happening in the highest office in the land because you only have to switch on to see disrespect in its finest form in those parliamentary sessions, in the press conferences. And, of course, as you have done, if you delve more deeply, you start to realise that the obstacles, the comments, the behaviours, the attitudes, the perceptions of women, the way they're portrayed in the media, the attitudes to which they're subjected in committees right through to the parliamentary chamber itself, all of these things expose the fact that we have gender inequality, we have disrespect and we have a long way to go. But we will get there. What do governments have to do? Invest in these areas in a suite of reforms ranging from law enforcement, judicial change, police understanding and awareness, right through to interventions, support through shelters, support for women in psychosocial senses, right through to primary prevention. So I'm at that pointy end (laughs) where I want governments to understand, yes, we do need to talk about respectful relationships in schools. And yes, we do need to run education programs and advertisements on television that explain that gender inequality is the problem. It's not just a case of saying, don't do it, violence is bad. We actually have to explain how we got here in the first place. And the more people understand the drivers of violence, the more they understand that it's based on inequality, I'm hoping the more they will call it out, they will expose bad behaviour, they'll challenge sexism, and hopefully we'll create a society where we do have a new normal, where people do enjoy respectful, ethical, healthy relationships. So it is time to craft a new narrative, isn't it, where a narrative in which equality is the norm and where it's it's what we all strive for. Lenora recently published a piece in Power to Persuade where she drew on the HILDA data, HILDA being the Household Income and Labor Dynamics in Australia survey. And I think we've already referred to some of this data through the conversation so far today. But she's referred to 14% of men saying that men make better political leaders than women and over 20% of men and more than 15% of women said it was better for everybody if the man earns the money and the woman takes care of children. How do we begin to address these ideas, the the ideas that might sometimes be described as the male breadwinner model of society? How can we flip this and and address it to really bring about a more equitable Australia? They are disturbing statistics, and, yes, that does need to be addressed, and the younger the better. We understand that a lot of the uh, perceptions that people have of the roles of men and women in society are developed very, very early. So age-appropriate education that explains that not only what respect is and what consent is and all of those important matters, but the earlier the better that the next generation sees uh, women and men performing different roles, that men don't have to be the hyper-masculine, you know, breadwinner strong, unemotional type. And the more we see women 
in positions of power and in non-traditional roles, all of this makes a difference. Symbolism makes a difference. I always tell my silly story about my dear daughter Cordelia and how she was surprised when Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister for the second time. I know lots of people were surprised, but she was surprised because she'd never seen a man in that role. And she said, Mum, I didn't know boys could be Prime Ministers. So <laughs> never underestimate the symbolism we can't be what we can't see and forgive me talking in binary terms because I know that it is a much broader debate about men women boys girls uh non-binary but when it comes to our perceptions of rigid gender stereotypes in Australia today they have been formed over decades and centuries and it will take a long time for us to get out of that I actually think we're moving at a pace that's really interesting now. I love the fact that young people have broad-ranging views on how they can dress and who they can be and the roles that they can perform, but there is still that reality of the statistics to which you refer and they are still reflected among young people in particular. So particularly young people have quite open views about equality, women's right to equality in education, in income, in professions, in sport, but we still have a cohort of young people, a significant one, that believes that men should have a dominant role in decision-making in relationships. So we're still working through some of these stereotypes and perceptions with young people. And younger, the better. I'm all for education. It's the great equaliser. It changes everything. You know, I say that not just as a proud former member of the ANU Council and loving the work of Crawford, but Education changes lives and it is so integrally important to the lives of women and girls around the world. But, yes, we've got to destroy some of those outdated perceptions and, again, we all have a role to play in that. And I go back to your question about, you know, the role of, of politicians and parliament. Incredibly, they have such an important role to play the most powerful people, arguably the most powerful men in the land, imagine if they created or presented us with very different images of collaborative work, different stereotypes as to, you know, who was in charge of the finances, you know, all of these things, you know, could make so much more of a difference. Calling out bad behaviour at the top levels. Imagine if a prime minister did that. <laughs> it would have an impact that's generational. I think that imagining is so fundamentally important when we think about how we can bring about change. And Natasha, I am with you all the way on the value of education and the power of education to open the world to young people and to change the world. Um, and I would just add here, one of the tragedies we're seeing in Australia at the moment is the hollowing out of our education system. And we have to speak out against that because that will matter for generations to come. This has been an incredible conversation. It's a conversation that I would like to continue, and I'm sure Anna Greta would like to continue for many hours to come, but we are going to, to have to wrap up, sadly. I did want to ask you two questions in closing. The first, tricky question, but what is the most important step that governments in Australia need to take as we move towards creating a society that is more gender equal, but more specifically, as we move towards gender equality in political leadership, what's the one step, or the first step is perhaps a better way of putting it, the first step that governments need to take? 
they have to address the national emergency that is violence against women uh, and children. There is no other more heinous manifestation of gender inequality in our country or the world. It has to be a priority. And women die every week on average, violently, as a consequence of this scourge. I don't know. There are many, many, many important issues, but this is single-handedly the biggest emergency facing women and particularly women from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds, women with disabilities and women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. We have to tackle primary prevention right through, but solve this crisis. It's preventable. Solve it. That's it. That's the biggest single human rights abuse right now in terms of women and girls. So I know there are other issues, but I'm passionate that this is a national emergency and has to be dealt with as the priority it is. I mean, that is genuinely a life and death issue that cannot Mm -hmm. wait. And Natasha, the, the final question that I would ask you, you mentioned earlier the the really disturbing plan survey about the very, very tiny number of, of girls who would be interested in pursuing a political career. What advice would you give to girls and to young women who are perhaps interested in playing an important role in their community, their country, their world, but don't see politics as being for them? What advice do you give them? Well, leadership and the opportunity to make change is not limited to formal roles certainly not limited to parliament. That's what I love about this current generation of activists and advocates and leaders, whether it's protesting in the streets or making change through NGOs, whether it's writing books or doing podcasts, change makers everywhere. I do, though, want to tell young people, don't give up on parliament just because parliament seems to have given up on you. There is a a situation, an environment, an institution that is ripe for change and I want you to be a part of that. So don't do it unaided. Don't do it alone. Do it as part of a group, supportive network, a movement, whatever it may be because the one thing that women who've been through the system like me can tell you is the honest truth. We can tell you what it's like but we can also say why it's worth it. And to change people's lives for the better with the stroke of a pen or click of a keyboard with legislation, that's the ultimate privilege. And for me as a feminist, that's what I wanted to do. My ambition was to change the lives of other women and the next generation, not just so that I could achieve. It's not about that. It's about what we do to enable the next generation and particularly women from backgrounds that aren't traditionally represented. So don't give up on politics. It should be and could be and one day again will be an honourable, honourable profession. But the ability to make change through legislation and policy is extraordinary. So all power to you. Natasha Stottersboyer, this has been a wonderful conversation. You are an inspiration. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Absolute honour. Sharon, that was an amazing conversation with Natasha Stott-Despoyer. And for me, she really did a superb job of explaining the importance of recognising gender diversity and gender equity in facilitating the most effective, the most empathetic and the best future of leadership, particularly in the Australian context. I, I, I learnt such a lot from listening to her. How did you find that conversation? 
I thought that was a phenomenal conversation. I mean, we do many conversations on this pod where I feel as though I will listen to it again and again and I will learn from it and I will share it with my students. But this was one that really stood out for me. I think that balance that Natasha has of being able to talk about really painful confronting issues, but to talk about them with a balance of um, evidence and passion and empathy, which was something we talked about, but to also bring that kind of future gaze, to bring some optimism that we can address these issues. So I think this was an amazing conversation, but also a phenomenally important conversation about how we move forward from this place we find ourselves at the moment. Yeah, no, it's a narrative shift and it's a time time for a new narrative. And I think that's the, the theme that's emerging from the conversations we've had in the last few episodes of Policy Forum Pod, going through the ideas of leadership and particularly in the Australian political context, that, that how we have been before is not how we should be in the future. And it really is an opportunity at this moment in time for us to consider the assets of what we have and the way the, the things, what the places where things are running well, but also to look at some of the vulnerabilities and the places where our politics are failing us and the ways in which a shift in how we do things might, might actually see us contend with a better future. Yeah, absolutely. And Anna Greta, we've we've been running the little hashtag value in care um, as we've mm. talked about a whole range of issues. And it strikes me when I'm when I reflect on the things that Natasha said that this is also about valuing care, valuing care for other people, for our society, care for justice, care for our environment, but care about how we engage with really confronting and challenging issues. So I think that idea of placing care at the centre of all we do, including political leadership, is just so important. Yeah, no, look, listeners, I haven't found a policy problem where caring doesn't help. So when you put that lens of valuing caring over the top of problems like climate change or gender equity or workers' rights and workers' discrimination or families or education, caring is a central issue to how we do things. And I think if we can really nudge that framework, maybe we can make some significant change for our future. Let's talk a little bit about next week because next week we're going to wrap up our leadership series and we have a fabulous guest who's joining us. And what I'm hoping we'll find our conversation uh, exploring is is the things that we've gone over in the last few weeks, the the history of leadership in Australia, uh, the ways in which the party system is really not delivering for individuals and for communities and the the role of uh, models like the independents going forward the challenges around diversity, in particular gender equity, as we've discussed with Natasha Tostop-Despoia. But the person that we have joining us next week, I think, will be able to give us quite a remarkable set of uh, visions for a future that can be different and a a future that can be better. Um, So I'm really excited for next week. I'm very excited about next week too, Anna Greater. And I think we might just keep this guest secret. We'll just tantalise people a little bit, but do (laughs) do make sure you join us for the final episode um, of this mini-series on leadership where we we do look towards the future and look towards how we can do things differently and better. But for now, thank you so much for joining us today to all our wonderful listeners. Do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum 
That's at APPS Policy Forum. Or flick us an email the old-fashioned way. We're at podcast at policyforum.net. Or you can join our Facebook group and stay engaged in the conversations that we have there. If you just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you will find us. Don't forget to subscribe to us on whatever platform you listen to the pod on. And don't forget to leave us a review. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the kinds of conversations that we're happening. And we'd love to open these conversations up. We will, as Anna Greta said, be back with a very exciting episode next week. So do join us then. But from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Bye, Sharon. It's bye-bye from Anna Greta Hunter too. I'm very much looking forward to next week. I will see you then. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.